This week, if you were looking at headlines, trying to figure out what exactly is happening in Iran, you would keep coming across one story in particular, again and again, the story that the so-called morality police were being abolished. Maybe. What do we know about the morality police? Have they been disbanded? Not at all. To be honest... Um, I started getting push notifications about this story at 10 a.m. on Sunday. And reporters were trying to clean up the mess they left behind for days. Now U.S. officials believe the regime may be signaling they will shut down the morality police as a way to preempt a planned three-day strike as the economy crumbles. I asked the How quickly were you frustrated by the coverage of this story? Was it like right away? I try not to get into my personal opinions, but I will say I raised the flag quite quickly internally. Um, and so we actually did not lead with, uh, with that headline. Nahayat Tazoush is an Iranian journalist at the CBC, the Canadian broadcasting company. She was not supposed to be working when this story broke, but she weighed in anyway to warn her bosses that the morality police probably were not going anywhere anytime soon. Nahayat has been keeping her eyes on the protest movement in Iran since it ramped up this September. It started with the death of a young woman who'd been detained. Apparently, she was wearing her hijab wrong. In the weeks and months since, Nahayat says, frustration has snowballed in ways that are hard for an outsider to see or understand. And the misunderstanding this weekend reflects that. It started when the attorney general of Iran made some comments suggesting that the morality police, the same people who detained Masa Amini, the woman who died, had been abolished. But in the same breath, the attorney general admitted this police force was not part of his jurisdiction. Since then, a few regime officials and parliamentarians have come out and again have given conflicting information, you know, leading certain, you know, people, activists, the U.S. State Department to say, listen, we just don't have enough information to even definitively say that the morality police has been disbanded or abolished. It sounds confusing. And it also sounds like the main people who benefit from that confusion are people inside the government of Iran. That's the allegation, right? That's the allegation by a lot of activists, a lot of Iranians who, as soon as that news was, you know, spread, were sort of saying, guys, hold on, wait a minute. This is the regime's MO. The, you have to also remember in the context of what was happening. So it was quite literally on the eve of three-day national strikes, right, um, happening in Iran. And so a lot of activists who I have spoken with have told me, you know, this is disinformation to either give the impression that something is changing inside the regime, that, you know, these protests are having some sort of impact, um, and just simply to distract. Nahayat says if the government wants to distract people, it's because something major is shifting in this country. Well, I think um, we're seeing an unprecedented movement in Iran. So all this week, um, there's been strikes across the country. So there's videos, images of, you know, stores being completely shut down. And dozens and dozens of cities uh, across Iran are participating. And are people still being arrested and threatened by the government? Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Today on the show... Nahayat is going to tell the story of one of these people, a protester whose arrest is shaking the foundations of this nascent movement. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. 
Part of what Nahayat Tezush finds frustrating about covering the protests in Iran is that, like a lot of Western journalists, she finds it difficult to know exactly what's going on in the country, day to day. She wanted to tell the story of one person caught up in this moment of change. And that's how she found herself drawn to an Iranian rapper named Tumaj Salehi. She followed him online, knew he was vocal politically. He'd even been detained before for some particularly stinging lyrics. Oh, and she loved his flow. You know, some stuff might get lost in translation, but I would say he's an OG rapper. There's no auto-tune. There is nothing. It's just him, and he spits fast. And his lyrics bite, if I can say it that way. They really bite. Personally, I've I've listened to him for, for many years. Who sent you his music? My mom. My mom. I was in the car with my mother and she was listening to rap music. And I was like, Mom, what's, what are you listening to? <laughs> and she was like, this is a guy who, who raps. Why was your mom into him? Well, this is the interesting part. I think a lot of people, when they first hear his music, they don't even think that he's somebody who's inside the country because his message is so forceful and so quite, like you know, aimed at the regime and critical of the regime in a country where any sentence, any word of dissent can uh, really land you in jail. And then God knows what will happen to you. That willingness to take on the Iranian government, it is part of Tumaj Salehi's appeal, not just for expats like Nahayat and her mom, but for people inside Iran, too. Back in 2021, Tumaj released a song he's become known for ever since. In English, it translates to Mouse Hole. It called out not just the Islamic Republic, but all the people who uphold Iran's ruling elite, even passively. So Surah Mush Mousehole, as, as you said in English, um, is actually a song that I think really was a thorn in the side of the Islamic Republic, which landed him uh, in jail, not the first time because he had been arrested before, but in 2021. So in that song, he essentially sort of challenges, I would say, um, not just people in the regime, but people who have propped up the regime, in his words, to find a mouse hole to hide in because the end of their days are coming. Like he talks about celebrities that like play both sides of the fence a little bit. Exactly, exactly. So he has one particular quote, you know, in that song, Surah Mush, you know, if you saw people's pain and you turned a blind eye, you know, if you cheated out of fear or self-interest, you too are a partner in crime of the tyrant. You too are a criminal. Sort of to this point that he makes continuously that if you look the other way, if you don't, you know, see what's happening and, and you know, even vocalize that you don't agree with what the regime is doing, you are part of this apparatus. You are part of this regime's oppression of the Iranian people. Do you have any sense of how Tumaj became the person he is right now? Because it seems very atypical to me that someone, first of all, like becomes an artist that's pretty hard, but second of all, uses their art to do something so political, so anti-government. Like, how did he 
do all of those things? So we know a little bit about him. What I do know from his uncle, who said on record that Tumaj's mother herself died when Tumaj was younger, and she apparently was a political prisoner herself, uh, or she was political. And it's clear that he doesn't come from, let's call it the upper class economically. He comes from a working class family, regular, you know, just simple family life. He was aware and felt what the most vulnerable in society felt and feel inside Iran. Because it's easy to be disconnected from political realities or perhaps, you know, political resistance when you are affluent, let's say. After releasing Mousehole, Tumaj was arrested and then released by Iranian authorities. But it meant that when protests started up in earnest this fall, he was a target. That didn't stop him from posting support for the uprising on Twitter and Instagram. He released music, too, like this song, Battlefield. His lyrics say, it's time to attack the enemy without fear. And don't call us rebels. We came for a revolution. So when protests broke out in the last few months, did you immediately think, like, I wonder what Tamaj Salehi is saying about all this? Yeah, yeah. That was pretty much my first thought because, you know, um, as journalists, we're always looking to get as close as possible to a story, right? And so the challenge with Iran being that reliable media is simply not present inside Iran. If you notice, everyone is reporting from outside of Iran. Um, so in a, in a quest to sort of get as close as possible and somebody who has been outspoken for years and years, I I just thought he'd be amazing to speak with. What happened when you reached out? I personally didn't even think he would respond to me. I reached out to him on Instagram and I sent him a note and I said, here's my, you know, um, work experience. If you want to look at my bylines, this is who I am. I would love to speak with you about what's happening in Iran. And he responded immediately, um, immediately. And the only question he asked me was whether or not our broadcaster publishes in Farsi or broadcasts in Farsi in Persian. Was that for his safety? I mean, listen, he clearly, and he told me himself he, at this stage, like he, he didn't care about his safety. But I think um, he was very aware of what it would mean for Western media to um, just give people a sense of what's happening inside Iran and that it could be much more powerful, perhaps, than just speaking to a media that is targeted to a Persian-speaking audience, right? To, to get his message out to an English-speaking audience, for people to get a sense of what's happening. So I think that may have been some of the reason, because I did ask him, I said, do you want to switch our conversation over to perhaps Signal and to, to be safer, just as you said? And he said, no, safety at this stage doesn't really matter. They monitor my phones anyway. So um, from the get-go, I said, okay, this guy is either crazy or just fearless. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you talk about how he was clearly very thoughtful about who would be seeing him and how they saw him. Because one of the things that stood out when I watched your interview with him was that he could be anywhere when he did this interview. He has a beautiful white background, pictures of Iranian people behind him. I wondered if they were maybe people who'd been arrested or something else. They are. 
And that was actually his suggestion. He was sending me pictures and he said, I'm making this as the background for the interview. And if you look on the left side, it's people including um, Masa Amini who were killed in this in this uprising. And on the other side, it's people like uh, Hossein Ronari, who is... Uh, an incredible journalist and writer inside Iran who until recently was also jailed and and tortured. He's since been released. So this is something that goes to, to, to Tumaj's character. He's extremely humble and the people are always first. He doesn't see himself as anything unique, which is probably a bit confusing to people who listen to his story, but <laughs> he sort of always um, puts Iranian people um, in the foreground. Yeah. He really plainly lays out, like, here's why the West knows so little about what's happening in Iran. Like, we're not bringing our cell phones to protests, so we can't be tracked. And so what you're seeing is just what gets out. And, like, there are so many restrictions on that because people aren't bringing devices to record. And then people can't get the videos out of the country because of the internet restrictions. And so you realize it's like this huge funnel, like so much is happening, but you're only seeing the tiniest amount. Yeah, that we're just simply not seeing, Mary. And that's what he was um, he was saying. You know, there are crimes happening in parts of Iran that we might never find out about because videos are simply not getting out. He talks about how, you know, when you take a phone, those who are brave enough to even take their cell phone to protest and just the action of aiming up your phone and recording what you know, the regime agents and forces are doing puts you in the line of fire, quite frankly. There is a video of one woman in particular who was recording a video while she was chanting, don't be afraid, and she was shot that very second, and it's captured on video. So it really goes to show you that the people who are protesting on the street not only are they risking their lives as they're protesting, but they're also risking more so their lives by filming what is happening to them and to to their compatriots. So it's um and and Tumaj was very aware of that and he really wanted to sort of bring that across. How did you find out that Tumaj had been arrested? Well, that was a crazy um, day in itself because our story, we had been working on getting the story out. We had to translate clips and it was a quite, quite a long piece. I wanted to do it justice. And so um, it took about a week and a half or so to even get the story ready. And so the day the story was supposed to actually go out, the day that the interview clips were meant to air or be published, was the same day I found out about Tumaj's arrest. An hour before our story was meant to go live, I found out that he was essentially abducted by regime forces from the southwestern uh, region of Iran, uh, where he had sort of been trying to avoid the regime. Huh. Did you worry that your interview was part of the reason he was arrested? You know, I, I, I did have a quick thought about it, but I brushed that aside just because I, I, um, I really got a sense of who he is, I think, in the interview. He, no matter what happens to him, wanted his message and the people's message to be heard. Do you think he knew he would be arrested for what he said? He absolutely knew. When we come back, Tamaj Salehi has been detained before, 
But this time, he faces the harshest consequences yet. I know that you've been in touch with Tumaj's family and, and friends since his arrest. What do they know about where he is, how he is? So if we start at the beginning, when he was first abducted, there was really no information about his whereabouts for, I think, three days. Um, so no one knew where he had been taken or, or his condition or anything really about what they might be doing to him. Um, and then the regime's broadcaster, one of the state news agencies on Twitter, on social media, posted a very, very short clip purportedly showing Tumaj in a blindfold. He looked like he was under duress, um, expressing regret for uh, threatening the regime, essentially. And of course, it's the MO of this of, of the Islamic Republic. Forced confessions, they have a track record of doing that. Not just forced confessions, but airing them publicly. You know, they've since put out another video of him, and they're always very, very short. And they're always um, about his music or particular messages that have particularly resonated with Iranian people that they ask him or force him, I should say, not ask him, to recant. So that in itself really tells you um, about perhaps the threat they see in someone like Tumaj. You look at videos and people are chanting for him to be freed inside Iran. And pe people go so far as to say, if one hair on the top of his head, you know, is harmed, we will cause riots. You say that some of these Iranian protesters have said things like, if you touch a hair on his head, we'll be in the streets. It sounds like the regime has done much more than touched a hair on his head. What do we know about how Tumaj has been treated in prison? Yeah, so I've spoken with, um, with one source in particular who essentially gathered information from uh, people who have uh, left that jail in Esfahan that Tumaj is in. And um, there are sort of two, two things to update about him. We know from those reports that he's been severely tortured. Um, there were initially reports of one of his legs being broken as a result of a gunshot wound, that his leg was in a cast, um, that his face had severely been damaged as a result of torture. And then the most recent reports from that source suggest that he is staying defiant inside the jail. Um, and on one occasion, at least, he started shouting out loud from inside the, the cell that he was in against the regime and other cells reportedly joined in, other prisoners joined in, and sort of a bit of a riot started inside the jail and forces quickly intervened and isolated Tumaj, according to these reports, and severely beat him, uh, one, with one report suggesting that they, they had the intent of killing him. What are the charges against Tumaj? I think you've said he faces potentially the death penalty. Yeah, the, the sources that I've spoken to 
essentially were quite worried because it appeared that he was going to be charged with uh, muharab, which means waging war against God, as well as corruption on earth. In Persian, it's mufsed filars. Um, the charge of muharab was left off uh, of his indictment, but that charge of corruption on earth it still calls for the death sentence under Iran's Islamic Sharia law. So that is what he's facing along with other charges. And that will likely be, be done in what's called a revolutionary court in Iran. These are specific courts that, have, that were set up after the Islamic revolution in 79 to deal with any political dissent, to squash that essentially. Verdicts in these courts are, are reportedly decided before the trial even takes place. So there is no due process in these courts, just to be frank. What you're laying out is pretty grim. Mm-hmm. I, I just wonder, what's the timeline here for all of this? Like Here in the United States, it takes a long time for someone to go from charged with a crime, on trial, if they're you know, death penalty, execution, it takes decades. I, I don't get the sense that's the case in Iran. No, and it's also really difficult to know because there's no real, you know, due process in these courts. Um, and in Tumaj's case in particular, he is high profile. So his case, it will most likely be decided at the desk of somebody who works for the regime's security or intelligence apparatus. So, you know, the family is in limbo. Those who love him are in limbo. It's not clear what's going to happen. And his team is sort of, it would be fair to say, trying to keep his name out there to keep up public pressure. Because we've seen in other cases um, of you know high-profile Iranians who were who were jailed that public pressure sometimes does work um, in either getting visitation or even the release of prisoners on bail. Um, his family has not been able to see him in 38 days. Has not even spoken with him, and it's not clear what the intelligence or security apparatus of of the regime will decide to do with him. Yeah, I was struck by the fact that. Tumaj's Twitter account is still tweeting. Like it's still sending messages out. It's still tweaking the regime. And I guess what you're saying is that that's strategic to just stay out there. Tumaj was very, um, I can say he was selfless. He told me himself, he said, I'm always worried when I join these protests, that if I get arrested, I'm not worried about myself. I'm worried that people will lose faith. And I think keeping his Instagram, his Twitter, his social media going is part of that, is part of keeping almost his voice alive, even when he's behind bars, to keep pushing people, to keep motivating people. Do you think he'll ever speak to Tumaj again? Do you think about that? I have thought about it. Um... It's very difficult to predict, right? Um, we don't know what will happen to him. Um, I can perhaps only say that I hope we can speak again. Um, and certainly the people around him are really doing everything possible to, to make sure that he comes out relatively unharmed in this, in this case, meaning that he's not killed. Nahayat, I'm really grateful for your time and your reporting and your dedication to this story. Thanks. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mary, for having me. I appreciate it. Nahayat Tezush is a producer at the CBC. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to show our bosses that you like what we're up to is to go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up for our membership program. It's known as Slate Plus. It comes with great benefits like all access to slate.com and ad-free podcasts like this one. Anyway, go find out more about it. That URL again is slate.com slash whatnextplus. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, Victoria Dominguez, and Sam Kim. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. I'm handing things off to the What Next TBD crew right now, but I will be back in this feed on Monday.